Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is you boast in your arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Today I want to talk to you about making plans. And I want to talk to you about how and why and when your plans go awry. You know this, right? The plans that you make don't always work out the way you want them to be. I have a perfect illustration of what James is talking about. I can summarize it in one word or maybe even four numbers. 2020. Uh, Raise your hand in the room if your plans for 2020 worked out the way that you thought they were going to work out. Everything that you wanted came to fruition in 2020 the way you were hoping on January 3rd, 2020 that they would come to pass. Anybody, anybody, nobody? Well, uh, this is the beginning of a new year, and it is good time, a good time for us to think about making plans. But that's not the only reason that I want to pick up this passage today. I want to use this passage to help you think not just about your plans in 2021, but I want to use this passage to help you process the year that has been and the months that will continue as the pandemic continues in the next few months. I'm going to talk with you about your plans, how to make them, uh, what to do when they fail, and the role that God might play in that uh, process. And to organize our thoughts as we work our way through this paragraph, we're going to, uh, I want to organize it under two headings. First, we're going to talk about how not to make plans, and then we're going to talk about how to make plans. What does James warn us to avoid, and what does James counsel us to do? Let's begin, how not to make plans. And I can summarize what James says with a word that James uses, the word arrogant. Don't make plans arrogantly. Don't make plans arrogantly. Now, I'm going to explain what I mean or what James means by that in in just a minute. But before I even get to there, I should clarify a couple things about this paragraph that people have assumed when they have taken it up. Some people believe that James 4, 13 to 18 is a condemnation of making plans at all. As if the apostle doesn't want you to make plans. It's not wise or godly or good to make plans. Some people have read it that way. I don't think that's what James is talking about. Our dear brothers and sisters who think that James is condemning plan making at all should read the book of Proverbs. Or maybe spend a little bit of time with the apostle Paul in the book of Acts or his letters. Paul was a meticulous planner and he wrote about his plans. This is not a paragraph warning us about making plans at all. Some people also have picked this passage up and read it as a critique of capitalism. As if James' concern is about making plans that involve making money. Business and money, that's that's what he's concerned about. He doesn't want you to make plans to go make money because capitalism like that is unbiblical. There are some people who have argued that. Um, I understand their concerns. Um, James is quite tough in the rest of the book on wealth and on the wealthy, and he has a lot of advice for rich people. 
Now, you don't actually have to be rich in order to do what James is saying here, you, but you do have to have some means, right? You have to have some financial means in order to think about uh, moving somewhere else and setting up a business. You've got to have some investment capital. So um, if, if this paragraph isn't for the rich, it's at least for people with some means. But, but think about the, the rest of the way that the, the epistle of James talks about money. In fact, uh, go ahead and, and verse uh, chapter 5, the paragraph right after this. So uh, James 4.13 begins, now listen. James has, wants to have a word. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, now listen, same way, you rich people. And, this whole, and the next paragraph, he talks about the danger of riches. He condemns the wealthy in, this, in the congregations to which he's writing for their hoarding of their wealth and for their oppression of the poor and for their self-indulgent luxury. Anybody who reads the, gospel, uh, the epistle of James has to come away with some concern about the damage that wealth can do to your spiritual life. Poverty is not necessarily a great boon to your spiritual life. And wealth is not a, a sin, but both poverty and riches can be dangerous to your spiritual life. And if you are wise, you will think about that. So James has warnings about that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about in James 14, 4, 13 to 18. That's not the central problem. One of the reasons why I think that is because one of the key players in the book of Acts was a traveling businesswoman. There are other traveling businessmen and women in the book of Acts, but there was a woman in, in uh, Acts chapter 16, the first, uh, one of the first converts to the Lord Jesus on the continent of Europe. She was from, the text says, a city called Thyatira, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. But she met Paul and heard the gospel when she was in Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. And why had she left her home? I think the text tells us she was a dealer in purple cloth. She sold luxury fabric. And she had moved from Thyatira to Philippi. Maybe she had said to herself, hey, let's go to Philippi and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. And while she was there, she heard the gospel and believed and became a financial supporter, a significant financial supporter of the church in Philippi. So I don't think that's James' concern, capitalism or making plans or even making plans to make money. I think that the problem that James has in mind is making plans without regard for God. That's the problem. Acting as if you have control over your life that only God has and that you have, acting as if you have the power to make all of your plans come true. It's an overestimating your control, your stability, your longevity, your competence. And James says, if you make plans without regard for God and his overruling authority, you are arrogant. It's not in keeping with how believers think and how believers act. I think that's why he begins in verse 13 with this tone. It's a little bit, a little bit harsh. Now listen. This is the tone you take with your kids, right? When you're at somebody's house and they're not acting the way that you have taught them to act. They're not being good representatives of the family. You pull them aside and you say, now listen. James pulls aside the believers and he says, now listen. You brothers and sisters, you're not acting like members of the family. You're acting like dad doesn't exist. 
Like the father has no will or no plans. This is a serious matter. He talks about what you say. He's more concerned than just about the words that are coming out of your mouth. This is a very serious matter. We know that because of the language he uses in verses 16 and 17. You boast in your arrogant schemes. And that boasting is evil. If you do what James is warning against, verse 17, it is a sin. He's, he's serious about this. The language, the way it's written, they're not just boasting. It's not just arrogant that they're making plans without regard for God. They're boasting about their arrogant plans. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you about my impressive plans. James says, that's evil. It's sin. It's arrogant. It's nauseating to God. Now, if, if, to recognize this language, we can begin to think for a moment here about the breadth with which the Bible talks about sin. When we talk about sin and we say uh, the scripture is very clear, everybody has sinned, all human beings have sinned, we often start with the foundation of sin and focus on our behaviors. Sin is an action. Sin is what we do that breaks one of God's commands. And that's a fine place to start. It's a good place to start with your third grade Sunday school class. Sin is breaking one of God's commands, doing what he has commanded us not to do. But the Bible doesn't stop with just our actions. In fact, here in this passage, James is talking about your attitude, not just your action. Your attitude that is evil, that is arrogant, that is sin. Now we know this, right? We know this instinctively, don't you? You know that your attitude can cause great problems. Picture yourself, fourth graders, as a fourth grader, right? And as a fourth grader, you're sitting in your living room uh, watching television or playing uh, with your Wii or uh, on the iPad doing some sort of uh, game, all things that I could not do when I was in fourth grade. But anyway, imagine you're there, sitting there, fourth grade, and your mom comes into your room and into the living room and says, hey, it's time to go clean your room. Your room is a disaster. I want you to go upstairs and clean your room. And you say, oh, mom, come on. Do I have to? I'm busy. And she says, yes, you must. In fact, you must go now. In fact, if that's the way you speak to me, you may never come out of your room that you're going to go clean. And you huff. And you throw the Wii controller down or the iPad down on the couch and you stomp out of the room and you storm up the stairs and you go into your room and you shut the door louder than you should have shut it. You know what's going to happen, right? Your mother's going to come behind you, very quickly behind you. She may, with the great control of the Holy Spirit, have the patience to knock on your door or she may just barge in. And she'll say to you, young lady, and you'll say, I'm doing what you told me to do. I don't know what the problem is. I'm cleaning my room. Your mother at that moment in time is not honored by your obedience, right? You may actually, your body may be in motion doing what she has commanded you to do, but your attitude is dishonoring her. It is not uh, uh, obeying her, the attitude, your attitude is the problem. And it's not just fourth graders who struggle with this. The Bible, when it talks about your sin, it starts, it talks to you about your actions. It talks to you about your attitude. It talks to you about your values, your loves, 
your desires. It's important for us to think about this because we live in a culture that is increasingly arguing that our desires, that what you desire cannot possibly be wrong. How can God condemn what I desire? I didn't choose what I desire. It's just the way it is. How can it possibly be something that's wrong? Not all sin is consciously chosen. And, and, and the Bible speaks to us about how we fall short of God's standards, his glory, in our actions, our attitudes, our desires, our values, what we love. Verse 17 is even more broad, isn't it? Uh, verse 17, is, it's difficult to figure out how verse 17 fits in this paragraph. On the one hand, if we read verse 17 narrowly, it's a verse in which James is saying, look, I've told you what to do. If you don't do what I command you to do, it's a sin. If you don't make plans this way, you're sinning. That, that may be the main import of verse 17. But verse 17 is a very broad verse. If you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, it's sin. James here is describing what theologians have called the sins, sins of omission. Sins of omission. There are good things that, that God has commanded you to do, and if you, don't do, if you know them and you don't do them, you have omitted to do them, you have committed a sin of omission, you are guilty for not doing the good things you know you should do. That's opposed, of course, to the other type of sin, sins of commission, where you commit things that God has commanded us not to do. When the Bible talks about our guilt before God, it digs us into a very deep hole. I'm not trying to belittle you by making this observation. I'm not trying to put you down. I want you to see the significance of the problem that we all have before a holy God. Because it is by seeing the significance of the problem we have before a holy God that we grow in our wonder at his love and mercy that he would ever forgive us. That he would ever send his son to be our savior. I can ask you this question. How broken of a person are you? How guilty of a person are you? How lost are you? Are you a little bit lost so you just need a little savior? Are you a little broken so you just need a little fix? How much of a savior do you need? We come to the Bible. We recognize in the scriptures we don't need a little help. We don't need a life coach. We don't need someone to just give us a few easy steps or someone who uh, just to give us a new list of rules. Just follow these 10 or 12 rules and your life will be put back in order. We don't need instructions we need news. We need news about what the Lord Jesus has done for us on the cross. You need a whole Savior because you are wholly dead in trespasses and sins. James goes after our attitudes. Now, we can be more specific about the attitude that James has in mind. In verse 14, this attitude is an attitude of presumption about our ability to control our lives. He says in verse 14, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't have enough knowledge to make definitive plans or to act as if your plans will never be countered or never be challenged. Then he says, you're a mist. You, you don't have the power to make your plans come true. Here, here's the truth. Um, 
James is saying, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the control, you don't have the longevity, and you don't have the power to ensure that your plans will come true. Other than that, though, you're just fine. Uh, is, there anybody, is there anybody on January 3rd, 2020, a year ago from today, did anybody have any ideas of what the pandemic would do and would be like and what your year would be like? I mean, we knew about the virus because we saw um, videos of those poor people in Wuhan, China, locked in their apartments. And I, I saw that and I thought, well, that's what communist dictatorships do. Of course, that's what happens, right? Had no idea what was going to happen. Then uh, when we were having um, our elders meeting, one of our first elders meeting by Zoom, technology we all despise. We had our first, uh, one of our first elders, it was convenient, it was helpful. One of our first elders meetings by Zoom, we were talking about the, how long this was going to last and how long we wouldn't be meeting in public and what sort of plans we would be making. And uh, 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 Fred Straub wanted to emphasize to us, Fred Straub, the most careful and cautious uh, member of the Board of Elders, wanted to emphasize to us how long this is going to last. We better prepare. He had a sign made. He held up in front of his computer screen. It said September. And he said, this is going to last until September. And I thought to myself, that can't possibly be right. And it wasn't. <laughs> First time Fred Straub has ever been wrong by being too optimistic. <laughs> Our dear brother Fred. Right? You're, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. James says, and your life's a mist. You have very little power to control the things that are going to happen to you. A, a mist, a fog, or think of the smoke that rises from a blown out candle. Next time you have a candle lit in your house, blow it out and watch the smoke and think about this concept in the, in the book of James. It rises and it is subject to the currents in your kitchen, right? The wind's not blowing in your kitchen. But that candle smoke, you, you blow and it just moves. It has no power and no influence at all. James wants you to remember that. Your, uh, the transitoriness of human life is a theme of the Bible. Look at Proverbs 27.1. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You don't know, he says in verse 14. Or Psalm 39, 5 and 6. Here this goes along with the mist concept. You have made my days, the psalmist is praying to God. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Making plans is an act of arrogance if you forget the limits of your knowledge and the limits of your control and the limits of your longevity and your power. Part of the problem is, part of the problem, James doesn't talk about this too much in this passage. Part of the problem is that nobody ever makes plans that involve bad things happening to them. You, you buy insurance, that's good. You make contingency plans, that's good. But those are always plan B. No one buys an insurance policy eager to use it, right? Ooh, I hope I break my arm so I really get my money out of this health insurance. Nobody makes those plans. In fact, whenever you make plans, it's always going to be good and smooth and easy. Even when you make plans to do something stupid, it's always going to be good and safe and easy. You're going to be the exception to the rule. 
Yes, most people die when they drive this fast on this curvy road, but not me. I'm going to be fine. Right? I'll be the exception. Nobody makes plans for bad things to happen to them. You have not penciled in. You did not schedule COVID-19 into your life for 2020, and you have not penciled in a car accident or chemotherapy. Nobody puts that into their plans. Grief and sorrow, suffering. But you're a mist. You're a mist, and you don't know what's going to happen. I wonder how attuned you are to this reality when you make your plans. You are not a certain individual, but God is certain. He is solid. He is secure. He is certain. And we can think about making plans with that reality when we come to verse 15, and we'll move on to the second heading of this passage, how to make plans how to make plans, and I had an uh, adverb for how not to make plans, so here's one for how to make plans. James tells us, make them dependently. Make your plans dependently. Verse 15 again. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James is not... I'm not sure if James is commanding us that every time we make a plan or issue a plan that we have to say if it's the Lord's will or Lord willing, although that wouldn't hurt to add that to your vocabulary. I think he's actually more concerned with your attitude or how God's sovereign will works in your plan making. Just as we think about Do I have to say these words? Well, sometimes Paul, when he made plans, sometimes he says words like this and sometimes he doesn't. Again, it's your attitude that James is after. God reigns. I make plans and God reigns. He rules. He's sovereign over all of my plans, all of the plans that I make. And my plans are contingent on his plans. He always accomplishes always his plans and purposes and God doesn't consult me and God doesn't look at my plans and change who he is, his plans, based on what my plans are. This is what we believe about God, that he always accomplishes his purposes and his plans. Look at two verses from scripture. We can look at a dozen, we look at three dozen, but here's just a couple. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven He does whatever pleases him. He accomplishes his plans. And Ephesians 1.11, even more potent for this. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out. Here's this description of who God is. Who is God? God is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What happens? Only the things happen that are in conformity with the purposes of God's plans, with the purposes of God's will, because that's who he is. He's the one who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. We, as family members of God, think about our lives in terms of his higher power and his higher authority. And much of the time, at least some of the time, you, if you've been a follower of Jesus long enough, You can look back and testify in your life and say, this was my plan, this was God's plan, God's plan happened, and it was better than my plan. What God wanted to happen was better than what 
I wanted to happen. And, and, and we look and we, we, we say with gratitude, God works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. And that's, it's good. It's good that that happens. But we should be honest, there are times that that frustrates us. It frustrates us and confuses us. It frustrates, frustrates us on the one hand because, frankly, I would like that amount of power in my life. I don't like being so limited. Uh, D.A. Carson writes about um, a missionary friend he has who was serving overseas in a country and they had a particular conversation around the breakfast table one morning. Their six-year-old son announced to the family, when I grow up, I want to be a parent. His mother said to him, oh really, why do you want to be a parent when you grow up? Because parents get to tell people what to do. In fact, he said, when I'm grown up, I want to be God because God tells everyone what to do. It's a six-year-old saying what all of us think, but we've taught ourselves not to say those things out loud. Right? My plans are contingent upon God's plans. Many times that's good, and I can see the goodness in it. Sometimes it's frustrating because... I wish I had that power. Sometimes that's hard to recognize or hard to, to believe or accept or celebrate because God's will, God's plan includes suffering and sorrow and grief and pain that I never would have planned for myself. And I have questions about it. We have questions about it. At the end of 2020, we have to face the reality that the reason your plans didn't work out was because of a pandemic that has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, I just listened, I finished listening to last week a novel by Jan Karen. Do you know who Jan Karen is? Jan Karen has written 14 or 15 novels about a character. His name is Father Tim. And Father Tim is an evangelical Episcopalian priest who lives in a small town in North Carolina. And I have uh, listened to or read several of these novels. It's not deep literature, okay? This is not the Brothers Karamazov, okay? It's, but it is... I like it because the books are funny and they're sometimes poignant and the main character is a pastor, so I roll with it. This novel that I just uh, listened to, Pastor Tim, Father Tim is concerned about a young man in his, uh, it's kind of related to him, who is uh, 16 or 17 years old and he's really struggling with, he had a terrible home life and he's struggling with what sort of life he's going to live, so Father Tim wants to help him and encourage him. And he, he, he wants to spend time with him, so he invites him one day to go to the local hospital, and they're going to do some volunteer work cleaning some shrubbery and br uh, uh, bushes from the hospital. So they go, and they work all day, and at the end of the day, they go into the hospital to scrub up, to wash, and, and a nurse comes up and says, Father Tim, Father Tim, there's a young man here who needs prayer. Please come and pray for him. So Father Tim walks into the emergency room, this bay, where they have kept this young man. He is 17 years old, and... Sammy, the young man that, that Father Tim is trying to, to encourage, follows him to this room, and when they walk in, they're shocked. Lying in the bed is a 17-year-old boy who was injured somehow by a, a garbage can compactor, and it just did terrible damage to this body. 
Sammy walks in behind Father Tim and Sammy runs out of the room. He sees the kid in the bed and he runs out of the room. Father Tim prays and, and leaves and here's how the conversation continues or the, the story continues. Sammy's in the truck. Father Tim comes out of the hospital. Father Tim repositioned, I'll read now. Father Tim repositioned a few of the larger branches in the truck bed needing time. He had prayed for the boy, the doctors and nurses, all of it masking a kind of interior howl. Hospital patients had come and gone in his life, but nothing had rocked him quite like this. He opened the truck door. Why'd you do that? Why'd you make me do that? Sammy shouted. I didn't need to see that. They want any reason to make me see that. That's some kind of God that need to do that to somebody. That's some kind of God you think so much of. No way I'd do that to nobody. Hurt somebody like that. Yelling, sobbing, then opening the passenger door and getting out and shouting into the cab. Is it all just lies? I thought you was all about the truth. How can you be about the truth if God is all about lies? I don't get it. I don't want to get it. I ain't never going to get it. And there came the stream of vitriol the boy had grown up with. And him being 17, was that just some sort of setup to teach me a lesson about being good? We all ask questions like that, right? I don't get it. I'm never going to get it. I don't understand. If I were God, I wouldn't treat somebody like that. What is going on? We all ask questions like that. Every follower of Jesus does. God in his kindness has given the church teachers to think about these deep issues and study the scriptures and examine them, help us process some of these things. John Piper has a book that's coming out at the end of this month. It's called Providence, where he wrestles with some of these issues. The book is 752 pages long. Don't read this book in bed because it will fall on your face if you fall asleep and kill you. It will be an act of providence. I'm sure, I'm sure because I know I've read John Piper books before, I'm sure it will be biblically rigorous. He'll take every verse of the Bible that speaks about this issue very seriously and he'll write about it. And I'm sure that it will be, uh, that he'll take into account some of the objections and questions that people have. And I'm sure it will be pastorally sensitive. John Piper has stood over the gravesite of little children who've died from cancer. I'm sure he'll write about those things. I'm sure it'll be very helpful and very useful. But most of us are not going to read a 752-page book about this. I mean, the church needs books like this and teachers like this who can produce this. We, we need people like that. But you know what most of us are going to do? Most of us are going to read the scriptures. And we're going to see how God introduces himself to us. And we're going to read about what God does for us through the cross, that terrible evil of his own dear son. And we're going to read about how God accomplishes his purposes and his plans. And we're going to read about the promises that he makes for the future. And we're going to say to ourselves, when everything is said and done, when God wraps up history, we're going to say to ourselves, we know in that day all will be well. I have questions. 
I have questions right now that I don't know the answer to, and I'm sure the specificity and the pain of my questions will not even be silenced by a 752-page book, but I read the scriptures. Who is God? Who is this God who wills, who works out everything in conformity to the purposes of his will? He's going to wrap up history, and all will be well. All will be well. Take the Lord's will into your planning. This sense of dependence. It applies to everything. It applies even verse 15 to whether or not you're going to live. If it is the Lord's will, we'll live. That's pretty basic. If it's the Lord's will, I'll be alive. And when his will is accomplished and everything is wrapped up, all will be well. Doug Moo says something interesting about verse 15. He says, verse 15, not only does it build within us a sense of dependence, there's also a sense of submission when we make our plans with verse 15 in mind. If you're going to build your plans off of the Lord's will, if it is the Lord's will, it, it changes the way you make plans or changes the plans you make, right? You can't say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll be able to murder grandma by next month, right? You can't say that. It's inconsistent. Or, huh, if it's the Lord's will, I'm going to divorce my wife and be able to move in with my girlfriend. Can't make plans like that. If it's the Lord's will, I'll be able to file this fraudulent tax document and get even a bigger return this spring. You see the inconsistency there, right? This is not just dependence, it's submission too. Well, we've read James 4, 13 to 18. Does anybody want to make any predictions for 2021 of what's going to happen? Actually, you could make some predictions, right? Uh, There are some things that will happen. They just always happen. Some people will be born. Some people will die. Congress will do something foolish, right? There's just things that happen every year. We just know, and that's just what's going to be. But is there anybody who wants to stand up and share with us their specific plans for 2021, things they know for sure are going to happen? No. Let's make plans. Make plans, but hold on to them loosely because God holds on to us and history tightly. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this word and this paragraph about your plans. We're grateful to to you for it even as it intimidates and frightens us. You, the sovereign God who always accomplishes your purposes and your plans, we are frightened by the fact that sometimes your plans involve for us suffering and sorrow and grief that intimidates us, frightens us. And yet we know of your great goodness, your love for us. You have demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, Father, I pray that you would grant us to walk before you in humility and independence. 
recognizing your sovereign care which surrounds us and which is um, over us. May we be your children who gladly submit and who by faith say, all will be well. We pray these things because the Lord Jesus made it possible to speak to you, for us to speak to you. And we pray these things in his name, saying, Amen.